Welcome to the West Virginia Writers Podcast, a service of West Virginia Writers Incorporated, the Mountain State's largest all-volunteer nonprofit organization dedicated to writers. Established and incorporated in 1977, West Virginia Writers continues to support writers and writing statewide through program sponsorship, an annual writing contest, and an annual Summer Writers Conference. This podcast is dedicated to promoting the organization, its members, and events, as well as writers throughout Appalachia and beyond. And now, broadcasting from atop a hill in Mercer County, here is your host, El Presidente, Emeritus. Thank you, Gertrude and Ola listeners. Welcome to Episode 28 of the West Virginia Writers Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Richus. In addition to being the birthday month for this podcast, April is National Poetry Month. I thought, therefore, it would be nice to celebrate the month with some recorded live poetry readings, as well as some rebroadcasts of some of our previous interviews with poets. This week marks part one of a two-part series of readings taken from the poetry edition of the Literary Tea Series that West Virginia Writers co-sponsors each year with the Greenbrier Valley Theater in Lewisburg. During the event, the stage is open for people to come in and recite either their own poetry or simply poetry that they love. I've been honored to serve as MC of this for the past few years, so you'll hear me piping in once in a while to introduce each of the poets. The first poet we'll be playing is the guest of honor for the tea, Sarah Crickenberger. Sarah placed in a number of categories in the 2009 West Virginia Writers Writing Contest, including second place in short poetry, second in short story, and honorable mention in the Appalachian Writing category. The first thing I want to read is, is actually the one that I entered in West Virginia Writers, and it's set um, just down a few blocks from here, 219 South Court Street. It's the house that my grandfather built for my grandmother in the 1940s. My, grand, my mother was raised there, and she has moved back and lived there the last few years. And it's called uh, Ginkgo Biloba. This tree was supposed to be extinct three million years ago, my white-haired grandfather told me when I was a small girl, standing under its green and golden fans. Our tree must be famous, I thought, believing it was the last to survive. After towering over Jurassic fish and lizards and prototype birds, long before dinosaurs and mammals and flowers were even a glimmer in Mother Nature's eye, living witness as Pangea burst forth, birthing Eurasia and Gondwana, I pressed its leaves between the coarse pages of the Sears Roebuck catalog to preserve evidence of its existence in front of that red brick house on the shaded street where little girls believed in grandfathers, the miracle of time, and the myth of being special. As it turned out, ours was not the only ginkgo tree. <laughs> I didn't discover that until a long time later. I told people like in college, you know, we had the only ginkgo tree. And then I found out that this group of monks in Japan had saved the seeds. Um, and, and were able to repopulate um, the whole world, the whole planet, with ginkgo trees. And they really had gone almost extinct. But, uh, you know, as it turned out, Granddad was slightly off on the whole concept there. Um, there were a few others. In fact, there were some, you know, a block away. <laughs> but I, I missed that. So, anyway. Um, this one is, is called At Mink Shoals on the Elk. And, um, I hope you get it um, in my kayak. It's on the Elk River. The brilliant abrasive blue is not, as my artist mother would say, a color found in nature. Yet the river accepts it, ignores it, 
permits free passage, riding low in the rock-dense ripples. The blue heron watches it glide past, unafraid, unmoved from his lunch business. Ducks swim alongside their bulky, plastic-plumed sister. Fish dart underneath, unconcerned. The rhythmic dip of the paddle almost silent, the only human sound. And since we've got time, I'm gonna, I was going to add, um, I was going to keep it to the three short ones, but I'm going to add a, another piece that um, this is probably the only place this would be appropriate. But um, when I moved to uh, Virginia to do my MFA at Virginia Tech, some friends helped me move, and they unpacked all of my boxes of books and things, and I walked around and was noticing how they had unpacked things, and they just kind of randomly threw them on the shelves. And um, this poem is about what happened when I looked to see where all the books ended up. It's called Books on Shelves. Helpers unpack the heavy cardboard boxes, randomly tossing books onto shelves. Hardbacks and soft volumes, slender and fat. No more than stacks of paper, this wide or that tall. She moves to the shelves, touching the color, the sleek spines erasing her fingerprints. Oh God, she moans, finding the Kama Sutra in the spare room where her mother sleeps. <laughs> Hemingway is scattered from place to place. He might like that, she thinks, smiling. Simone de Beauvoir and Sartre, together now, but not always, she thinks, lest boredom set in. Pat Conroy, sipping sweet tea with Mary Lee Settle, talking about the South. Dorothy Parker sits with Isak Dennison. She wishes she could hear that conversation. Molly Ivins and Thoreau talk politics with Rachel Carson and Robert Putnam, Mary McCarthy and Virginia Woolf, perhaps debating the merits of feminism. The Liars Club next to Comfort Me with Apples, a, child, a happy childhood, a curse to a writer. Stephen King's On Writing next to The Holy Bible, revised standard version. Les Miserables snug up against the complete fat book, perhaps the most ironic. West Virginia getaways, not the same trip in Alexander Thom's Follow the River. Pocket Spanish might come in handy with a thousand places to see before you die. Catherine Graham's personal history by the history of God. Their eyes were watching God with Poisonwood Bible, <laughs> a beautiful mind next to animal dreams and Modoc, the true story of the greatest elephant that ever lived. House rights celebrating a different builder than Anne Mora Lindbergh's Gift from the Sea. She laughs to see Anna Karenina nestled with Don't Sweat the Small Stuff. <laughs> Goldberg's bee season lands with the bird artist. Millions of words waiting for those who care to see. And this is the last one. It's very short. It's called How to Be Happy or What I Learned from My Dog. Eat when you are hungry. Don't eat when you aren't. Save one treat for later. Put it in a safe place. Visit it. Then put it in another place. You can do this all day. It never gets old. Run for a while every day. Go as fast as you can. Feel the wind in your hair. Smile when you run. Go in circles or figure eights. It's fun to chase something, but you don't have to. Curl up, 
nap in the sunshine, hold on the bed or the floor, roll over so you can feel the warmth on all your skin, stretch when you wake up, downward dog, then upward dog. It's okay to yawn. Do a happy dance, jump, and spin to celebrate when the one you love comes home, even if she's just been to the mailbox by the street. Life's too short to play hard to get. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that because I just got a new puppy a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> and I'm enjoying it while it's small because supposedly, even though it's a pound puppy, supposedly it's a St. Bernard Leonberger mix. So it's going to be just enormous. So far he looks like a pug though. Our next reader for the evening is Sammy Lewis. <coughs> Good evening. Can you hear me now? <laughs> uh, I'd like to read some of my own poetry for you tonight. The first one, <clears throat> Minute Management Gone Awry. Economic downturns force my use of an alternate telecommunicator. The no contract, no monthly bill, Prepaid minutes, track fame. Clutching my new fang to my bosom, I pranced around, pleased as punch, gloating over the hundreds of minutes, newly minted, now my very own. I dialed friends and family with no restraint, secure in prepaid haven. <laughs> the dialies reciprocated with glee, Glad for reunion catch-up time with me. During the calls, a sense of ill ease bub bubbled under the surface, soon bursting into bloom. Those unfettered calls had gobbled up my precious hoard of minutes savagely. Recovering somewhat, I refilled the magic minute coffers but my track fun joy was replaced by an obsession, obsessive phobia, lost minute syndrome. <laughs> to avoid further track minute shrinkage, a stern method was needed, brevity. Speed talking, limiting political and me medical complaints, <laughs> slashing calls, to the minimum. Others, I learned, were also beset by this strange malady, this minute miser disorder. They searched for enlightenment, peace of mind. I heightened my ignoble rudeness when calls from kith and kin arrived I routinely kept them off mid-sentence. <laughs> My mind focused only on the depletion of track minutes. I was nearing distress. For a time, some friends still called, attempting to impart inane chit-chat with no success. A lottery commissioner called, Mumbling about a million something or other in trust, 
I ended that nonsense with a resounding click. How dare he waste my fleeting minutes? Now, no one seeks to dial my track fan's number. I am perceived with dread and disgust. Oh, if I could but redo my telephonic past, regain my better self, learn restraint. In my quest for redemption, the track phone's number must no longer be enthralled. My attention will be elsewhere in meetings with fellow miscreant counterparts. When I ask for their help, the public telephone on the corner is where I'll make the call. <laughs> Black market Twinkies in our, fur our future. <laughs> Beware, folks. The fat police are on the march. Coming for us, we chubby ones. The fat police are here to raid our refrigerators, our lives, our contentments. They wish to change our rosy, smiling faces to grouchy, angry, starvation proponents. Why are these belligerent little people so angry, so adamant in their attacks? Whatever happened to the premise of freedom of choice, of steak or gruel, fat or lean, sweet or sour, tasty or bland, satisfactorily fed or merely sufficient? I say, let us hold our drumsticks on high <laughs> and, and fight for our right to refuel. <laughs> Our basic traditions are at stake. Hot dogs, holiday pies, cakes, ice cream. Traditions assailed by ones with caloric deficiency and no sweets or steaks in, on which to chew. They have handy bathroom scales and cal calipers attached to the gleaming to their gleaming service belts, ready to weigh and measure over endowed frames, and pinch an inch on us too. <laughs> the, the fat patrol go about their business banning this or that, wreaking havoc as they pass. No more coconut oil in movie popcorn. No more donuts fried in pure sweet lard. These oils replaced by man-made products with impure additives meant to slim us down. This fat police oil decree caused obesity to escalate, yet they blame us with no regard. Our adversaries are mean and miserably unhappy from lack of food. They're ever on the prowl. We happy, contented people go through life with satisfaction, 
full of vim, vigor, and food. We tubbies always have a brownie or two up our sleeves, and we're not afraid to use them. (laughs) Enemy, be on alert. If you finagle with our meats and sweets, we'll resist. That's a certitude. Meeting over grinning buffet tables, we ponder our line of defense against the fat police. We nibble coconut oil popcorn, lard fried donuts, as we sip a high-caffeine coffee brew. The final consensus, toasted by frosty chocolate milkshake drinks, is the fat police must back off or we patient, pleasingly plump people will be forced to sit on you. (laughs) (laughs) This next poem is in memory of my beloved sister-in-law, Gladys Lewis. She always dreamed of traveling the world, but instead devoted her life to family and friends. Gladys, angel of earth and heaven, gentle spirit, wait for us as we struggle to merit a place by your beloved precious side in your heavenly God-given space. By a glimpse of a shiny bewinged angel from the corner of an eye, we fathom you are here protecting us still in our wayward journey to your realm. Did you not wear rings from birth, visible only to the adoring beings that felt their brush on face and heart, who gladly partook of those earthly wings? You now soar over wonders of earth and heaven with gossamer wings and rapturous swirls. Oh, dear Gladys, flying glad abandon, savoring the knowledge and beauty of your two worlds. When time spins out and we seek your wings, let us in your wake soar to celestial heights beyond our sight, basking in the comfort of Gladys's wings once more. Gentle spirit, wait for us. Thank you so much. That concludes part one of our recording taken from last November's Literary Tea Poetry Edition. We'll play part two on April 16th. Next week, though, is a bonus episode rebroadcast of our first interview with the poet Dana Wildsmith. She'll be a returning guest for this year's summer conference. Our opening voiceover was provided by Marcus Vowell. Our show's theme music is used with permission by its composer, Pops Walker. This podcast is a production of Mr. Herman's Production Company Limited and was recorded, as always, atop a hill in Mercer County. <laughs>